1 Samuel chapter 9. I wonder if you acknowledge God is at work in every circumstance. I wonder if you ever wonder, is he at work in every circumstance? That, that's a question to which we all need an answer. If God is asking me to trust him with my eternity, with my soul, to, to place my faith in his son, well, what he says in his word about his son, don't I need to know that I can trust him in every circumstance? Some people picture God as managing the flow of history, like the general direction in a broad sense, not really in control of the details, but making sure that the general flow of things heads in the right direction and somehow he's going to work it all out in the end. But we know that's not how history actually works. So obviously I had elections on my mind this week, and I remember growing up hearing the story of a man named Henry Shoemaker. He lived in Indiana in the first half of the 19th century, and in 1842, Mr. Shoemaker was at work in a farmer's field. And he's getting to the middle of the day, and he's trying to think, like, I am forgetting something. And he realizes, oh, I had promised this guy, Madison Marsh, that I was going to vote for him, and it's election day. And so he leaves his work, he saddles his horse, and heads to the nearest polling place, which is 12 miles away, which, I mean, that's, that's no joke on a horse. And he gets there and he, he votes. And when the votes are tallied, Mr. Marsh had won by one vote. <laughs> Shoemaker's vote mattered. Now, now, if we believe that God is in control of big things, like setting up and tearing down rulers, it seems obvious when we think about it that he's also providentially guiding small things, like whether this one particular guy voted. We need to know that God is in control of every little detail. And in in our text this morning, we're going to see God working details together as he answers the request of Israel to provide them with a king. So, like I said, this is a long passage. Bear with me as we read it. But I want to read the whole passage. 1 Samuel, beginning in chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalashah, but did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring to the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, 
Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went into the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill into the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Samuel came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel. The day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel. Tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me where is the house of the seer? Samuel said to Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion that I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelda, and they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to worry about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you 
and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall go to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Then he turned his back. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all the people who, who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So, like I said, that's a, that's a long chunk. But but in that, I think reading that, that whole text will give us the context that we need. We're gonna, I think we've got one main point in this whole passage. One, one big lesson for us to take home that we'll look at in three different ways. But the big point is this. God is the one at work. As we look at this passage, I want to organize our thoughts under three headings. That is provision, providence, and peculiarity. Because I needed another P word. <laughs> uh, I think the word fits, though, when you the end of chapter or the middle of chapter 10 there is kind of weird. First, first, we'll look at God's provision. Remember that in chapter eight, the people had demanded a king. At, at the end of the chapter, we read Samuel telling the people, chapter eight, verse 22, go every man to his city. And then as chapter nine opens, we get what to our Western eyes seems a really weird way to open up this chapter, we get six generations of genealogy of this man of wealth or significance, Kish the Benjaminite. But even though that seems weird to us, like why are you opening up a story with a genealogy? It's it's very significant in 1 Samuel because it marks a new phase in the book. If you remember chapter 1, the, the, the opening of 1 Samuel starts with the genealogy of Elkanah. And it does so as a way of introducing us to his son, Samuel. And in chapter 16, we're going to have an almost a whole chapter, not of genealogy, but of meeting a family, the family of David. Here in chapter 9, we're introduced to the lineage of Kish as a way to bring attention, to focus our attention on Saul. The author wants us to see that Saul will become the center of this story for the next several chapters, and he does so by situating him in a particular family context. 
as for Saul himself, we find in verse 2 that he is a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, it says. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So the first thing we read about Saul is that he has an influential or powerful dad, uh, man of wealth, his father Kish, and, and that he looks the part of a king. He's taller than everybody else. He's good looking. But that's interesting because it might actually be our first indication that he's not prime king material. As human beings, we want our leaders to look the part. Right? Have you ever listened to commentary after like a debate and people talk about who looked presidential? Even like they, not even talking about what they said. Uh, to use a really old example, uh, I, I think the first televised debate was between Nixon and Kennedy. And they said if you listened to Nixon Kennedy on the radio, Nixon won the debate. But if you watched on TV, Kennedy won because he just looked the part. And that's, that's what we've got here with Saul, is someone who looks the part. But is that what God looks for in a king? For Samuel 16, 7 tells us, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We're being introduced here to the man that God himself will establish as the nation's first king. But it seems that from the beginning, the author is going to drop hints to us that this might not be the sort of man who is a man after God's own heart. Saul is, despite his looks, an unlikely figure. He's not the person that the people are necessarily looking for in and of himself. And we see this in his own reaction when you get to the point in the story where Samuel is saying to him, well, who, you're, you're the man, as, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel, second half of chapter 9, verse 20. Now, now, this phrase, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel, this could be understood as saying that everything good in this land is going to come to you. It's coming to you as the king. And, and that would make a lot of sense given uh, what Samuel had said to the people in chapter 8, that, that the king is going to get all of your good stuff. Everything good in this land, it's going to the king. You don't get to keep it anymore. Another way that this could be translated is that all the desires of Israel are for you, are for a king like you. Either way, it strikes Saul as very strange. He, he protests. He says, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And if you remember the book of Judges, or if, if you're familiar with it, the, the tribe of Benjamin is almost wiped out in, in Judges 19 and 20. Uh, there's this horrible story of, uh, of Levi and his concubine, and and at the end of that story, the, the people of Israel are so angry with the tribe of Benjamin that they come and they wipe out basically all of the men. They have to start giving them men to the wives to rebuild the tribe of Benjamin. And they have this tiny territory. They're just, they're not a significant tribe. The, and it seems, trying to, to take what Saul's saying at face value and not think he's uh, having some false humility here. But he says, and is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Now, if his dad's a man of wealth, humblest probably doesn't mean like poorest. It probably means just like the smallest, the smallest numerically of this small tribe. I'm, I'm the least of the least when it comes to 
who I already have connections to and would have power over naturally. Kingship doesn't seem to be on Saul's list of career goals or, or aspirations. But while it's not part of his plan for himself, it is part of God's plan for him. Even, even Saul's name does seem to fit the circumstances. I was helped a lot this week reading R.F. Youngblood's commentary, and he notes here that the Hebrew root for the name Saul, and the name Saul means asked of God, that the root for that occurs in chapter 8, verse 10, where the people are asking for a king. So the people are asking for a king, and it's like God says, okay, I have a guy for you. Even his name means asked of God. They asked for a king, they give him a God gives them a king whose name is asked of God. Another thing that that I want to draw your attention to under this heading of God's provision is is the idea of anointing. The the Hebrew verb to anoint that's used in chapter 10, verse 1, is mashak. And it simply means to pour oil or to smear oil on someone's head. Here, Here Samuel dumps a flask of oil onto Saul's head. It's used here as, as as an action setting Saul apart for kingship. And, and Samuel makes it clear that this is not him as a prophet setting Saul apart, but God himself is setting Saul apart to be the king. Anointing also carries with it the idea of God's blessing for the service that someone's being set apart to. And we see that in chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took the flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hands of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Now the idea that Saul is an anointed one, Yahweh's Mashiach, becomes important in this book. You might hear in that Mashiach, the anointed one, Messiah. That's where we get our word Messiah from. It means anointed one. It's the same, this is the same word. Saul, Saul is with a is he's the Messiah with a lowercase M. You know, the the people of Israel, when we get to the time of Jesus, they are waiting for a capital M Messiah, the one to save them. Well, one of one of the first iterations that that we start to get a shadow that maybe this figure will be a kingly figure is Saul being anointed, set apart, and set apart even to save the people. You saw it there, 10.1, the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his people Israel, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord and will save them from the hands of their surrounding enemies. The, The Messiah that the people need is someone who will save them and God is going to use Saul to do that in a limited way. Not, not only in the verses that follow are we going to see how important it is that Saul is the Lord's anointed. As God seals this to be true by giving him the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit rushes upon Saul. But even after Saul has abandoned the Lord later in his life, David is going to continue to honor God's action in this moment. So God has anointed Saul to be his king. And David will refuse to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. That's how he puts it in 1 Samuel 24. I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. 
God has given Saul to the people, and he alone has the right and the ability to set up and tear down rulers. So the people have asked for a king, and God anoints, he, he provides for them. He anoints a king for them. But it is interesting. It seems like he picks a weird way to go about it. Uh, and so the second, second heading we have here is, is God's providence. So the title for the sermon that's in the bulletin is uh, Purpose Driven Donkeys. Not because not donkeys are actually the main player, but I enjoyed the play on words, and I didn't really know what the sermon was going to be about yet when I gave the title. So, um, but, but the donkeys, their, their presence actually does kind of frame the story for us. After the introduction, the genealogy in verses 1 and 2, we're thrust into a narrative of runaway donkeys. The, the donkeys of Kish are lost, and that sets his son, Samuel, Saul, not Samuel. Boy, mm. <laughs> they're, they're so close. I, I mean, I'm afraid of how many times I'm going to misspeak and not catch it today. It sets his son, Saul, on a journey to find them. And he takes one of the servant men with him, and they go looking. Uh, Verse 20 of chapter 9 tells us they were looking for three days. They're searching for these donkeys. And they wander all over the place. They head up north into the fertile hill country of Ephraim. Then they circle back south into the land of their own tribe, Benjamin. And this story is remarkable for how unremarkable it is. So the donkeys get out, and the farm boy and the servant go looking to find them. It's like the most mundane story in the world. <laughs> but during this fruitless search for the donkeys, Saul and his servant just happen to come across a city where the man of God is. How handy. Saul, Saul's tired after three days of searching, though, and it, it seems like he's more interested not in finding some help to find the donkeys. He just wants to go home. He just wants to hang up his hat and say, okay, the donkeys are lost, whatever. They're just donkeys. Dad's rich. Who cares? What can we bring to the man, he asks in verse 7 of chapter 9. And what he seems to be implying is that because they don't have a gift, they really shouldn't go talk to the seer, to the prophet, to the man of God, which seems to imply that part of how prophets made their living in that day was that people brought them gifts for their services. So he says, you know, we don't have anything. Let's just go back home. But then there's just another just happening. The servant says, oh, hey. I've got a quarter shekel in my pocket. And a lot of commentators, they, they say that the the way that this is written in Hebrew implies a, almost a surprise, like, oh, I just happened to have this quarter shekel of silver. We can take that to him. And again, this still, like all of these details on their own, they just seem like normal things. Like anybody who's ever had livestock knows what it is for them to get out and you have to chase them down. <laughs> like That's just part of the gig. Most of us have the experience of putting on a coat or a jacket and going, like, there's a five in here I didn't know about. <laughs> and we can all resonate with, with the experience of being tired and just wanting to give up on what we're supposed to be doing and just go home and take a nap. This is just the normal stuff of life that's happening here. And in it all... God is working. In, in his first Samuel commentary, Dale Ralph Davis has this helpful summary of what's meant by providence. Quote, providence is God's way of providing for the needs of his people. That's not all of it, but some of it. 
When I use providence here, I mean that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way Yahweh has of ruling his world and sustaining his people and his doing it frequently over, under, around, through, or in spite of the most common stuff of our lives and even the bias of our own wills, end quote. So in this ordinary story of some lost donkeys, we come to find that God is at work. They do go look for the man of God, and they they eventually find him. We find out in verse 14 that it's Samuel that they found. And here the narrator interjects, just to make sure we know that this isn't all just coincidence. This is God at work. Beginning in verse 15, it says, Now the day before Samuel, the day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. So so Saul thinks he's chasing livestock, but what's actually happening is that God is herding Saul up to Samuel to meet with him. Proverbs 16 and verse 9. tells us the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And then just a little right in Proverbs to chapter 20 and verse 24 says, A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? If I were to take a stab at answering the question that's asked in the second half of that second verse we read from Proverbs, The only way we can understand our own way, the only way we can understand our own life is to see the hand of providence at work, even in the most mundane parts of our lives. That's part of why verses like Philippians 2.14 are so important. Philippians 2.14 tells us, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling. Why should we not grumble? Because if God is sovereignly governing our lives, if he's in control of every little detail, and we grumble about our circumstances, then what we are in essence questioning is the goodness or the wisdom of God himself. That's not to say that there isn't a right place for lament. Of course there is. The psalmist himself asks, how long, O Lord? Like questions like that are are legitimate. But there is a world of difference between honest lament over the things that are wrong, over pain, over hardship on the one hand, and on the other hand, a dissatisfied or ungrateful griping about the way God is running the world. One assumes that a good God has a plan and seeks to understand that plan. God, would you please help me understand what's going on here? The other assumes that there's no reason for donkeys to get out and can't get over how inconvenient it is. The donkeys continue to help our story along, these purpose-driven donkeys, as Samuel informs Saul and the servant that they have been found. We're told that in verse 20, and that they no longer need to worry about them. And then mention of them brackets the end of our text in 1 Samuel 10, verses 14 to 16, where Saul tells his uncle how he knew the donkeys had been found. Samuel had informed him. 
So it's interesting when you get to the end that all he tells his uncle is about the donkeys. He doesn't tell him about the, the matter of the kingship. He kind of concludes it in a secret. He, he had a lot more to say, but he decides to keep it to the donkeys. God, God governs every little detail of this world. Uh, Jesus says in, in Matthew that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the knowledge of your father. The hairs of your very head are numbered. You know, like, you ever like run your hand through your hair? Yeah, hand through your hair. I said that right. And like all, all the hair that falls out, like even at my age, and I've still got a decent head of hair, but like hair's falling out all the time. And God knows all of them all of the time. Every detail is under the purview of his knowledge and control. From the transfer of the kingship in Samuel to the donkeys breaking down fences, these seem totally unrelated, but he's working them together. It's all congruent. Every, every time I'm asked, you know, this is just like if you're having conversations with people and it kind of slows down, one of the questions that sometimes gets brought up is, boy, if you could ever go back and change one thing in your life, what would it be? Or... Are there any things you would change in your life? And I'm almost always, if I'm honest, forced to answer no. I wouldn't change anything. Not because I have some rosy picture of how perfect my life has been, but but because I always start playing, well, if I change that, then what's this change and this and this and this and this and this? And every little detail in your life has brought you to where you are right now. God in his providence has done that. Our job is not to question if his hand was at work. It was. It is at work all the time. Our job is to trust that having an all-powerful God in control of and guiding the circumstances of life is better than if you or I were in control. Before we, we wrap up, I, I want to address some of the weird stuff in chapter 10. Uh, verses 2 and following. Samuel gives Saul a list of signs, peculiar signs, that this anointing truly is of the Lord. And they're so specific that if they come true, there can be no doubt that this is God speaking. First, someone's going to meet Saul and his servant as they come past Rachel's tomb. And and as they meet this person, this person's going to tell them, this is this random stranger, don't worry about your donkeys, the donkeys have been found, and now your dad's worried about you. Then, as they keep on going, they're going to meet three guys, one of whom is carrying three goats, which I'm just trying to imagine that. These must be little goats, like packing three goats around. <laughs> I'm imagining Elizabeth out in her barn, like trying to <laughs> wrestle three goats. And these, these guys carrying three goats, and then his buddy has three loaves of bread, and one guy has the skin of wine. Like, how did they divide this labor? But anyway, that, that's who he meets, and then they're going to give... Saul and his servant, two of the loaves of bread. And then as he gets to his hometown of Gibeah, it's uh, referred to by Samuel as Gibeah Elohim. The name Gibeah, the name of the city, just means that it's up on a hill. And Gibeah Elohim means the hill of God. So it's, it's referring to the same place. And, and as they get back to Saul's hometown, there's going to be a group of prophets coming down the hill out of town And the spirit of the Lord is going to rush upon Saul and cause him to prophesy with them. And it's interesting that that as far as meeting someone at the tomb and the 
guys with the goats and the bread. Verse 9 just gives us a simple summary. And all these signs came to pass on that day. Doesn't detail how it happened, just tells us it was fulfilled. It happened. But as for the last matter of Saul prophesying, the spirit of the Lord rushing upon him and him prophesying, we get a more detailed account of that in verses 10 through 13. I'm just going to read that again. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he had prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who was their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. So as to what exactly is happening when these prophets come down and what is the nature of their prophesying, some translations say uh, like a prophetic ecstasy or like that. We don't know really what's happening here. Um, It's just one of those really weird passages in scripture that we aren't given details about. Obviously, the readers of 1 Samuel originally probably had a picture in their mind of what to expect when the prophets are coming down the hill prophesying. It just, it seems weird. Obviously, these are considered genuine prophets by Samuel. uh, So they aren't just saying random ecstatic things. They have some sort of message from God if they're genuine prophets. Deuteronomy gives a test for prophets. And if they don't, if everything they say doesn't come true, then they're to be stoned. So, So these guys must be speaking something from God. But it just seems weird. And it only gets weirder when the spirit of the Lord rushes upon Saul and he joins them. He's this guy who's just been out looking for his donkeys and has been anointed as king unexpectedly. Now he's prophesying. And it catches the whole community off guard. These people know him. They've seen him grow up. And they say, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? It's so weird to them that afterward when something weird happens, it becomes a proverb that instead of saying, well, that was strange or what an odd circumstance, they just... It just becomes a phrase, well, uh, some some kid who has a C-plus average barely gets into college, and now all of a sudden he's the CEO of this giant company. Is Saul also among the prophets? You know, weird things happen. But the point of all of it, as obscure as the details might be to us, is that God is really doing something in Saul. He's really at work in Saul. This anointing is genuinely from God. Verse 9 of chapter 10 tells us that at some fundamental level, God has changed Saul. A new heart is given to him. Now, I don't think if you read through Saul's life, I don't think that's talking like in a salvation sense, like we would think in, in Ezekiel 36 or in the New Testament talking about a new heart. But there is a real change in him. The Spirit of God rushes upon him, causing him here to prophesy. At points later in the book, the Spirit of God is going to rush upon him to empower him for war. Perhaps one of the saddest moments in the book is when the Spirit decisively departs from Saul. In all of his kingship, Saul is going to be dependent on God. And when he acknowledges this and acts in that strength, the strength that God supplies, things go really well for Saul and for the kingdom. But when he tries to garner and guard his own strength, his personal strength, rather than strength from God, things take a disastrous turn for the worse. 
So in conclusion, the, I think the primary takeaway from this introduction to Saul is a reality check, that God is still the one on the throne. Though the people have desired a king and God is granting them their desire, the choice of an anointed one, the gift of the spirit, the search for the donkeys, every detail of the event is controlled not by the humans at play, but by God. Every step is ultimately in his control. And for us, we need to ask, like, do I see my life through that lens that God is the one in control? Do we see elections and sickness and, and the seasons changing in every detail of this life as under the control of the Almighty? And to, to drill down deeper, like, into the details of our own life, do we trust his providential care in our own sickness, not just sickness out there in some broad sense, but in our own sickness or the sickness of our families or, or in the slow deterioration of our body due to age? Do we know the hand of God to be at work even in our weaknesses? Do we trust that, that in everything, good or bad, that comes, he is at work working out his good purposes? This is where the rubber meets the road for us as believers. These, these chapters present us with an all-powerful God who is always bringing about his good purpose. And we are called to trust him in every circumstance. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are no less in control today than you were 3,000 years ago. And Lord, we thank you that we can trust you in all of that. Would you help us? Would you help us to see our lives through the lens of your good plan? That, that you are in control of every detail of our lives and you are working them together, as Paul says in Romans 8, for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. Would you help us to, to see that, that, like Saul, we are dependent on you? There, there's nothing we can do in our own power that's going to get us anywhere. The only hope for anything good in our life comes from you. So we thank you for the good things you can't, that you are doing, that we can see, and we trust you in those areas where we don't see what you're doing. Would you help us to fix our hope on Christ alone? It's in his name we pray. Amen.